Hey everyone, this is usually the time I tell you about our email newsletter, but I wanted to talk to you about something else. As of January 2023, It's All Journalism is hosted on Spotify's Megaphone platform, so you can subscribe to our podcast there, or you can continue subscribing, listening, or download new episodes of our podcast at Podcast One, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Amazon Music, Audible, or just about anywhere you can find podcasts. But wherever you find us, please subscribe so you won't miss an episode and like and share us on your social media. And now, this week's episode. Nobody was paying attention to that story except the reader, and that was in part because our reporter was on the ground in that area. So I think better stories, more stories come to the surface when you have more people out there with their tentacles into different communities. They're going to hear about them before the rest of us. As some news outlets struggle to hang on, others are finding new ways to thrive. Take the Chicago Reader, for example. Its formula for success not only included identifying new revenue streams, but also by prioritizing diversity in its newsroom. I'm Michael O'Connell. Welcome to It's All Journalism. In 2018, Tracy Baim took the reins as publisher of the Chicago Reader, the nation's first free weekly, which was two days away from being shut down. For the next four and a half years, Tracy worked to strengthen the reader's infrastructure and diversified its revenues, distribution, leadership, and staff. She also turned it into a nonprofit. Last summer, Tracy announced that she was going to step down, and in February, Solomon Lieberman was named the reader's new publisher. Tracy, welcome to It's All Journalism. Thanks for having me today. Okay, great. So, you know, I'm going to start by asking you the question I ask everybody who comes on is, what got you into journalism? Well, I think I had the double whammy of both my genetics and my environment. My mother was a journalist by trade, and her father had been that as well during World War II and after. And then my stepfather was in journalism as well. So they kind of led me both ways. And I used to go visit the newsrooms at the Chicago Tribune and the Chicago Defender when I was 9 and 10 years old and started my own family newsletter when I was 10, my grammar school newsletter when I was 11. It's all I ever wanted to be. Breaking those those big lunch lunchroom exclusives, I'm sure. <laughs> cool. So you've been a journalist for a pretty long time. You know, tell me about going into the gay press when you graduated with your journalism degree from Drake in 1984. You know, I went through journalism school hoping that you know things would be a good fit for me. But I learned during journalism school that being openly gay was probably going to be a big barrier. And my teachers told me that there were very few openly gay journalists in the mainstream media across the country. They were being realistic. So I actually thought I was going to have a career in typesetting and be a writer on the side. I didn't know there was a gay press. I had left Chicago to go to Des Moines, Iowa for college. So the mecca of gay journalism. But go on, please. Yeah. Well, I knew there was Ms. Magazine. So that was kind of my holy grail. I thought, well, if I could work at Ms. Magazine, that that's good. But so I started thinking and I actually came back and got a job in typesetting. But my mother had heard about a job at Gay Life newspaper in Chicago. So I, I walked in and there was this big typesetting machine and I said, oh, I'm home. I told them I can run that machine and I could write, take photographs, deliver the paper, whatever they needed me to do and, and never looked back. Well, that's a great story. And I'm glad you're able to sort of find a place that you fit in so well and I guess stuck there a long time. So what led you to becoming the uh, publisher at the Chicago Reader? Well, because I had been a lot in weekly community journalism for decades, I finally kind of was a little bit more known in the mainstream. And it really was a hot potato situation. The Chicago Sun-Times owned the reader at the time, and the Sun-Times had its own financial issues. So they were trying to jettison it, either close it or sell it for a dollar. 
And I had initially said no to that a few months prior because I didn't have any money. But two days before the shutdown, I was approached by the union and they said, there's actually a couple guys that might fund it. They just need someone to run it. And I was like, absolutely, 100%, I'm in. It was a very quick turnaround to get me in place. We left the Chicago Sun-Times offices within a couple weeks and moved to Bronzeville in Chicago. Elsie Higginbottom and Leonard Goodman subsidized it for a while. And I knew that they would eventually wear down. And I convinced them to uh, allow me to stand up a nonprofit organization that would eventually purchase it. So tell me a little bit about the paper, the Chicago Reader. I think it described it in the opening as, as an alternative press paper, which you know conjures up you know rock reviews and, and things like that. What was the Reader when, when you got there? What was its kind of role in Chicago? Well, I was, uh, I think, eight years old when it was founded in 1971. Alternative media back then was like the Village Voice. It really was the alternative to the mainstream, but it still was very kind of lily white. It was. It was rock music. It was cannabis. It was all sorts of alternative culture. But the reader was always known for really terrific long-form investigative journalism, feature profiles, covering all aspects of the Chicago that the mainstream media didn't have the time or ability really to, to cover the way the reader did as a weekly all, you know, alternative paper. When I took it over, it was kind of decimated, but still doing great work. The journalists were working very hard. You know, they were a shell of what it had been in terms of size and capacity, but they were still doing great work, especially in cultural coverage. So we set out building and getting new uh, editing team in to enhance what there was and build up the entire business side of the company had been swallowed up into the sun time. So it was still doing great journalism. That's the good thing. It just was limping along on the viability side. And that's what we turned around in four and a half years during a pandemic and everything else that happened. Our podcast used to be associated with the Association of Alternative News Weeklies. And so we had many guests on about that. And I understand that the the alt-weeklies, while they do have this impression that they're just you know writing about the rock shows and cannabis, they are sort of an alternative to community newspapers. And so it's a community paper, but it, community news also, for in a lot of people's minds, is the weekly paper that covers high school sports and things like that. So I know we've seen many papers fold and big dailies you know, lay off people. And, you know, what was the sort of journalism landscape when you took over the the paper in four and a half years ago? Well, it was pretty weak. In Chicago, there were a couple community papers that were, you know, Chicago Defender went online only. Oi, the Chicago Tribune's Latino newspaper closed. Things were not looking good even leading up to COVID. And then when COVID hit, obviously there was going to be even more devastation. The thing was, when I got to the reader, I immediately wanted to use that higher platform that I had to build an alliance of community media and go to funders, even for for-profits, and say that we need help. So we had already created an organization right before COVID hit, Chicago Independent Media Alliance, out of the reader, knowing that we could work together for a variety of things, whether that was editorial collaborations. It's turned out to be more revenue side collaborations, because when COVID hit, we immediately turned around and did a survey of our members told the funding community that there could be a collapse here of community media. Some funds were put into community media from foundations, and then we held a joint fundraiser with 43 of our members and raised $160,000. So that kind of collaborative work is what I really have enjoyed doing at The Reader. And even nationally, we've been able to talk to other cities about how that work happened. And the cloud is to push foundations to do more, both for nonprofit and for-profit community media. I think both models are important to keep going, 
the nonprofit model was good for the Chicago Reader. It's not going to be the solution. It's one tool in the toolkit, and all revenue models should be supported. The Reader is, is a print. You put out a print paper. Right. Every other week now, we're bi-weekly, we print 60,000 copies to about 1,200 locations. We also put the full copy of the paper online on issue, and then all the articles obviously online in text version. We got about a million readers a month online and 60,000 in print every other week. We could even print more. We run out. It used to print 100,000. So we know that there's a different kind of reader that loves print still. And it's democratizing because it's free. It's free in print. You don't have to have a smartphone. And so it's really important whether someone is unhoused or someone is wealthy on the North Lakefront, a lot of people prefer print for getting their information. Now, I know that you said you decided that the reader needed to be nonprofit. What was it about the reader that that was the model that was going to sustain it? I knew there was a tremendous loyalty and love of the Chicago Reader before I even took it over. But once I took it over, man, the, the love was real. We did an initial campaign about two months after I started, just asking people to become a founding member of the Chicago Reader for, at that point, $48 because it was 48 years old. We raised over $100,000 in a couple months, and we were a for-profit. And we started to see that loyalty. I'd started to see this trend where like the Salt Lake City Tribune and a few others were thinking about going nonprofit. So I really investigated what the foundation landscape was and then the loyalty and membership landscape. Block Club Chicago, for example, is a really strong membership model. And, you know, I knew that there's been this ever string of for-profit attempts at the reader since it was first sold more than a decade ago. It went through many different iterations. And we couldn't keep going to rich people to try to save it in the sense of a for-profit. The nonprofit model made sense for the Chicago Reader based on where we were, the loyalty factor, the kind of journalism that we do. And I think we hit that right in time. Like the foundation world is starting to finally support in a bigger way, both for-profit and nonprofit community media, not just the big entities like nonprofit radio. So... With your print edition, I mean, do you have a revenue stream there from any advertising? Yeah. So when I took it over, it was 99% dependent on print advertising. We are now 30% dependent on print advertising, 30% on digital, and the rest is a mix of foundations, members, events, benefits, etc. The tax laws are such that you need to get your advertising income down lower than that even, but we're going to try to see if there can be some policy change at the top because we don't want to be single point failure in any revenue stream whether it's advertising or philanthropy. So we have really changed the mix of revenue. We have plenty of advertising. We have our Best of Chicago issue coming up that'll probably be 96 pages. So being bi-weekly, we've really streamlined the costs and made every single print issue profitable. I can't say read five, 10 years in the future if print is still gonna be viable in terms of the costs of actually printing the paper and delivering it. But for now, the model is such that print advertising pays you more than you can get from the web when you're at a million readers a month. If you're the New York Times and you have over 100 million a month, the monetizing of that website is much better. But when you're community media and free, everything's free, print and online, you need that advertising dollar as well. Sort of something that you were saying about the fact that you, you have this print edition for a different type of reader. You know, I find that really admirable, just sort of recognizing there's this audience that wants to get us but whatever particular barrier that's keeping them from getting your content, that widens your base. And as long as you're able to sustain, because a lot of times the arguments when you get into nonprofit 
first versus profit or print versus digital, it's almost like all or the other. But it seems like you've come up with a, a way to sort of balance. For now, it works, and it works really well. We have many different ways that people can reach the readership and many ways the readers can reach us, whether that's they find us on social media or you know on Instagram, wherever they want to find us, they can find us. We obviously always are trying to grow that, and we're trying to grow our email list, we're trying to grow social media following all the time because you have this churn rate where people leave. So it's not like we have it fixed. We're just constantly remodeling it. So I, mean, I want to read this. This was uh, something that was published in February with the announcement of the new publisher. Current leadership consists of 57% people of color, 57% LGBTQ+, 15% disabled, and 86% female, non-binary, non-binary or trans. Of the overall staff, 47% are people of color, 33% LGBTQ, 8% disabled, and 67% female, non-binary, or trans. You know, one of the things that you, you did when you started out is you diversified not only your, your revenue side, but also your, your staff. Why was that sort of a cornerstone of what you wanted to do? Well, the reader, when I took it over, had one person of color <laughs> and pretty cisgender straight. And the city of Chicago is very diverse, right? It's a third African-American, a third Latino, a third white, definitely Asian and others in there as well. So I knew that to do the work you do, you need to be more representative of the city you serve. And that's not just on the staff, that's also on our vendors. We have an African-American distribution company, for example. It's also on the freelancers. We just got a grant to track our sources and our freelancers numbers to make sure we're diversifying that. We wanna represent the city It gives you better journalism. Let's just put it that way. When I was graduating in 1984 as an openly gay woman into journalism, there weren't openly gay women in journalism, which means the way the stories were approached when it came to LGBTQ issues at the time was horrible. The gay community was seen as pedophiles. HIV was seen as, you know, God's curse and people deserved it for their behavior. You know, you need a variety of views in the newsroom in order to get to what can be the best truth you could get to. There's no such thing as objectivity, but there is a way to get there better when you have more diverse voices at the table. So we certainly cover, have always covered the whole community. That's what's great about the Chicago Reader legacy. They were the first to really go in on the police torture that was happening in Chicago. And John Conroy spent a decade or more investigating that. So the reader's been good at the coverage side. What it's been lacking in is the diversity of the voices doing that work. So I'm really proud of that. It's not easy to sustain and continue, but you just have to be really aggressive at recruiting from a large pool of candidates. How do you operate that process? I mean, say you want to hire somebody to cover the courts. You know, what process do you go through to make sure you're pulling from a, a diverse pool? Well, we work with the union and we are a union shop and we ask them to certainly share it throughout their News Guild members. And then we also post it and tag all the different associations like the National Association of Black Journalists, Latino Journalists, Native American Journalists. And we go to the schools in their recruitment offices. You know, we want the best candidate no matter what. So sometimes it's a cisgender straight white man. Awesome. Right. We just want the best candidates. And sometimes people don't know they're welcome unless you really reach out special to the associations that they're part of. And you also continue to to showcase and diversify your staff. So I'm not saying it's easy. Believe me, we would love to get more candidates and better candidates. Part of our barrier is we are not able to pay that much yet. So we're working on making sure we can increase our pay rates so that we're more attractive to a wider range of candidates. 
there's a whole big mix in there. And really the reader is in the beginning phases of those significant changes. But I'm really proud of where we're at right now. I know that Solomon Lieberman is very committed to taking it to the next level. He used to be at the Better Government Association and it was one of his missions to diversify that staff. So I feel like we're in good hands that this will continue. Can you give me some examples of how did this sort of more diverse, you know, reporting staff, but also a more diverse leadership, you know, the types of stories you're able to cover? Well, I mean, the reader is very freelancer heavy, right? Meaning the freelancers pitch a lot to our editors and then our editors have a wide pool of freelancers to ask to pitch, right? So by having dozens and dozens of freelancers that live across the city of Chicago representing different groups, they're gonna hear about different stories in different neighborhoods of Chicago all over. For your listeners, like on the Southwest side of Chicago, that's been a pretty neglected area of the city. And we did extensive coverage last summer, a reporter that was funded through a racial justice reporting grant was able to do some really deep diving into um, park district that was had a riot fest at it. And the neighbors really didn't like it. They felt like it, people were coming in and trashing their neighborhood. And as a result of that series of stories by Kelly Garcia, the Park District changed its policies. And nobody was paying attention to that story except the reader. And that was in part because our reporter was on the ground in that area. So I think better stories, more stories come to the surface when you have more people out there with their tentacles into different communities. They're going to hear about them before the rest of us. Yeah. And I would also imagine your day-to-day stories, your day-to-day coverage would improve because you may be writing from a different perspective or you're probably writing from a different perspective. If, you know, there's some demonstration, you know, you're not going to go out there and just talk to the, you know, the cops, Hey, what's going on here? That may be part of your reporting. But if you've got somebody who's embedded in the community and understands maybe what the issues are at play, that's going to be in there. And then the great thing about that is once the story's published, the reader sees that you're, you're doing that, that their voice is represented. Exactly. It works all the way around. You know, it's interesting in the gay community, I experienced this, for example, whenever I run a black trans woman on the cover of the paper, I would sometimes, sometimes get a backlash and the white gay man would say, why aren't we on the cover? And I'm like, you know what? In the totality, we cover everybody. So any one issue of the paper may not reflect your point of view or a person that looks like you. But if you look at the across a whole year, you're going to see yourself. So sometimes equity doesn't look good to people who are used to being the only ones at the table. And so I got that at the reader. As soon as I took over and we started having African-Americans or Asian-Americans on the cover, white straight men from the north side of Chicago who were used to being always the focal point would say that. And I would bring out the evidence. I would say, look, look at our issue of the paper. If I look and count the images, it's over 50% white images, this issue. Next week, it might be different. But if you look at us over a course of a year, we're covering and representing the whole city of Chicago now. And that kind of difference sometimes offends people. And I don't apologize for it, but I do explain it so that they see it from the, again, I have a different perspective because I see every single issue of the paper. And I can tell you, we are representing everybody in the city of Chicago throughout the year. So, you know, I wasn't going to go too deep or ask you a lot of questions about being a gay journalist in Chicago. I know you said it started out, you know, people were telling you that there weren't going to be any opportunities for you, but you did find opportunities. You're about the same age as I am. I graduated in 1983. And, you know, the arc of gay representation in society has changed quite a lot from 1983, 1984. So as a gay journalist, you know, what was your experience? 
there's a, just a tremendous difference now in society overall, which then is reflected within careers like journalism. One of the real pivot points in journalism came in the late 1980s, around 1990, when a man named Leroy Aaron started the National LGBT Journalists Association, because they were not actually aimed at helping us in the gay press. They didn't really, really didn't acknowledge us. In fact, we had to pay to enter their awards and the, the straight press didn't. But that's because they were focusing on changing the newsrooms in mainstream media, from the New York Times to the Chicago Tribune, et cetera. Their goal was to make sure that gay journalists in those organizations were supported, that gay issues were covered fairly, that there was kind of a protection of an association when those gay journalists were to come out. And I, I'm telling you, it's one of the most profound impacts in the 1990s. It was probably one of the most effective organizations in making change in this country. You know, you needed the Human Rights Campaign, the National LGBT Task Force, all of those groups were doing important work. But the journalists changing really literally changed the narrative on covering HIV AIDS, on covering gay rights, eventually covering gay marriage. There was just a, a shift because it wasn't just that gay journalists were okay to cover gay issues. It was that other journalists were more educated when they covered our community. You know, there was a time when, and probably still today in some cases, there was a gay photographer in San Francisco that was not allowed to cover a gay protest because she might be biased. You know, I was seen as an activist journalist just merely by being gay and a journalist. It's the same thing for African-Americans and women, all marginalized people. They're seen as biased. So the cisgender, straight, white, wealthy view is the, the norm. And so all of those things started to break down in the 90s. And it's just profoundly different now. I mean, being gay isn't always an asset these days, but it can be. And there are many places where being openly LGBTQ of any kind is seen as a, a value added when it comes to being a journalist. And certainly, obviously, we're not at the end of whatever this road is that we're on. There's still a lot of things that need to be done. Certainly the dialogue going on in America right now about the trans community. But certainly since Black Lives Matter and George Floyd's death, nationwide there's been sort of this you know, focus. And newsrooms sort of took this up and many of them are reacting by saying, yes, this finally we need to focus on diversity. But here we are a few, few years down the road and it's like, where are the changes? Some of the people I've talked to on the one hand say that the outlet is more welcoming, more diverse for people of color, but others are, are really kind of frustrated because going back into sort of what you said, the cis white perspective, that the idea is, well, diversity is just filling seats. Example right now is what's happening at the New York Times with with their trans coverage. There's been this big backlash yeah. from current and former employees that signed a letter asking for a better approach to covering these issues. Right now, they take this little red herring approach where they find one narrative and they just stick to it, even if it's very disproportionately representing what the the situation is out there and in the medical community, kind of ignoring the people that have the strength and the credentials to be talking about these issues. So. That's a case where this marginalized community that has some support within the New York Times doesn't have it at the top. And the administration of the New York Times doesn't know how to handle it. They don't know how to handle this controversy. They're not doing it well. And it's because the voices at the table are not, they don't have the power to make the change. And the newspaper of record, so to speak, is becoming a broken record on trans issues. And it's bad. It's really bad. And it's informing legislation across the country. They don't understand the damage they're doing. They're validating these minority viewpoints that are destructive to families and they're coming between medical doctors and patients 
in a way that is really destroying lives. Yeah, like like that hasn't happened before. But you've been at the Reader for four and a half years. What do you have next? What are you focused on next? Well, I still have Windy City Times, the paper I co-founded in 1985. It's more of a hobby at this point, but it's the Chicago LGBT newspaper. It's part of a national alliance called News is Out of the top six gay papers in the country. So I'm working on trying to bring more resources to gay local media because it is really, really on a dangerous course of destruction, just like a lot of other smaller community media. So that's one thing I'm doing. But really what I want to do is get focused on a lot of writing, both writing in the ecosystem about journalism and collaborative journalism and work like that, but also writing LGBTQ history projects and biographies. I've done a few, like 13 books related to LGBTQ history in some way, and I want to get back to doing that and making documentaries out of some of the books I already have written, like on a lesbian pioneer named Barbara Giddings. I wrote a book about Obama and the gay community in 2010 when he was two years into office. I have just a lot of raw material. I have more than a million documents and lots of audio and photos about our community that I want to get into new formats so the next generation can learn them. While everybody else wants to censor the books in schools, I want to create more books and more information, more information online that's available free so that it's not all stuck in my head and goes with me when I pass away. Did you like amass all of these materials all of the time while you've been doing the one paper? Yeah, yeah. I have. I gave over a million documents to the Chicago Public Library, but I digitized them first. And then I have still a few boxes of my most important archives from the 1980s covering the March on Washington and some other events that I want to get digitized at a higher resolution. And I'm not really sure where it's going to take shape, but I definitely want to figure out a way to get information in those those kind of things out there. Because when I was first starting, of course, there was no Internet. So we had the paper that came out every week. And that was the curated version of what happened. But, you know, if I covered an event and took 200 photos, maybe one or two made it in the paper. Well, I have all those other photos and the negatives. And again, a lot of them are at the Chicago Public Library now. But I, I want to go through and kind of chisel out different projects from those documents. I was very much a pack rat. Luckily, they're mostly out of my home now into safe, safer places. But it's just really important, I think, I've learned from the prior years of papers before I started, the breadcrumbs of our history and the things especially that happened prior to the internet that can't be found easily, smaller publications and stories that weren't in the New York Times, I want to make sure gets out there in some form or another. You're primarily writing nonfiction? Yeah, primarily nonfiction. I've only done one fiction book. I do have a couple I'd like to do, but my main focus is nonfiction. Well, you know, I wish you luck with that. And I wish you luck with the Windy City Times. I really appreciate you talking on the podcast. Thanks for coming on. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter. You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. Speaking of subscribing, you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere good podcasts are found. If you'd like to help us grow our podcast, like and share our episodes on social media. Look for us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Capre wrote our theme music. Emilio Brust helped with our booking. Steph Thomas is our social media manager. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening. <laughs>